Hello, you lovely creatures. Welcome to the Drabblecast. My name is Jen, and I know my voice isn't the one that usually waltzes you into an episode the way Norm's does, but this week, in advance of our Kickstarter launch date, which is this Friday, September 14th, we're bringing you Drabblecast archive episodes. These are items that are favorites either of our team members, the team working behind the scenes to bring the Drabblecast back this fall, or of the Drabblecast community at large. And today's pick is my own. Today we have for you The Last Dog by Mike Resnick. This originally aired back in 2009 in episode 102 of the Drabblecast, and I'll admit that choosing a single favorite Drabblecast episode is pretty much impossible. Drabblecast is like one of those kids' flipbooks where you can choose the face and the outfit and the shoes of a character, but instead of faces and outfits and shoes, we're choosing between huge concepts like love and failure and heroicism and strange places like the human body or outer space and the characters get pretty weird too. We've got everything from teddy bears to clowns to giant deathworms. Anyway, it's pretty impossible to pick just one, but I chose this episode because of a conversation I had had a while ago with a friend in which we were discussing how the silences and the notes play equal parts in a musical composition to come together to bring you something huge. Lilu, stop! And in this show, the characters can't communicate in the way that we normally would as humans. So there's no verbal indication of where their pasts have brought them or how they need to move forward together. Every touch, every glance, every simple kindness that might be so small that it doesn't even seem like a kindness comes together to make this really monumental bond. So, without further ado, I'll let our illustrious narrator Norm bring you again The Last Dog by Mike Resnick. The dog, old, mangy, his vertebrae forming little ridges beneath the slack skin that covered his gaunt body, trotted through the deserted streets, nose to the ground. He was missing half an ear and most of his tail, and caked blood covered his neck like a scarf. He may have been gold once, or light brown, but now he looked like an old red brick even down to the straw and mud that clung to those few portions of his body which still retained any hair at all. Since he had no true perception of the passage of time, he had no idea when he'd last eaten, except that it had been a long time ago. A broken radiator in an automobile graveyard had provided water for the past week and kept him in the area long after the last of the rusty, translucent liquid was gone. He was panting now, his breath coming in a never-ending series of short spurts and gasps. His sides ached, his eyes watered, and every now and then he would trip over the rubble of the decayed and ruined buildings that lined the torturously fragmented street.
He continued trotting, occasionally shivering from the cold breeze that whistled down the streets of the lifeless city. Once he saw a rat, but a premature whine of hunger had sent it scurrying off into the debris before he could catch it. And so he trotted, his stride a little shorter, his chest hurting a little more, searching for sustenance so that he would live another day to hunt again and eat again and live still another day. Then suddenly he froze, his mud-caked nostrils testing the wind, the pitiful stump of a tail held rigidly behind him. He remained motionless for almost a minute, except for a spasmodic quivering in one foreleg, then slunk into the shadows and advanced silently down the street. He emerged at what had once been an intersection, stared at the thing across the street from him, and blinked. His eyesight, none too good even in the days of his youth and health, was insufficient to the task, and so he inched forward, belly to the ground, flecks of saliva falling onto his chest. The man heard a faint shuffling sound and looked into the shadows, a segment of an old two-by-four in his hand. He too was gaunt and dirty, his hair unkempt, four teeth missing and another one half-rotted away. His feet were wrapped in old rags, and the only thing that held his clothes together was the dirt. Who's there? he said in a rasping voice. The dog, fangs bared, moved out from between buildings and began advancing, a low growl rumbling in his throat. The man turned to face him, strengthening his grip on his makeshift war club. They stopped when they were fifteen feet apart, tense and unmoving. Slowly the man raised his club to striking position. Slowly the dog gathered his hind legs behind him. Then, without warning, a rat raced out of the debris and ran between them. Savage cries escaped the lips of both the dog and the man. The dog pounced, but the man's stick was even faster. It flew through the air and landed on the rat's back, pulping it to the ground and killing it instantly. The man walked forward to retrieve his weapon and his prey. As he reached down, the dog emitted a low growl. The man stared at him for a long moment. Then, very slowly, very carefully, he picked up one end of the stick. He sawed with the other end against the smashed body of the rat until it split in half and shoved one pulpy segment toward the dog. The dog remained motionless for a few seconds, then lowered his head, grabbed the blood-spattered piece of flesh and tissue, and raced off across the street with it. He stopped at the edge of the shadows, lay down, and began gnawing at his grisly meal. The man watched him for a moment, then picked up his half of the rat, squatted down like some million years gone progenitor, and did the same. When his meal was done, the man belched once, walked over to the still-standing wall of a building, sat with his back against it, laid his two-by-four across his thighs, and stared at the dog. The dog, licking forepaws that would never again be clean, stared back. They slept thus, motionless, in the ghost city. When the man awoke the next morning, he arose 
and the dog did likewise. The man balanced his stick across his shoulder and began walking, and after a moment the dog followed him. The man spent most of the day walking through the city, looking into the soft innards of stores and shops, occasionally cursing as dead store after dead store refused to yield up shoes or coats or food. At twilight, he built a small fire in the rubble and looked around for the dog, but could not find it. The man slept uneasily and awoke some two hours before sunrise. The dog was sleeping about twenty feet away from him. The man sat up abruptly, and the dog, startled, raced off. Ten minutes later he was back, stopping about eighty feet distant, ready to race away again at an instant's warning, but back nonetheless. The man looked at the dog, shrugged, and began walking in a northerly direction. By midday he had reached the outskirts of the city, and finding the ground soft and muddy, he dug a hole with his hands and his stick. He sat down next to it and waited as water slowly seeped into it. Finally, he reached his hands down, cupping them together, and drew the precious fluid up to his lips. He did this twice more, then began walking again. Some instinct prompted him to turn back, and he saw the dog eagerly lapping up what water remained. He made another kill that night a medium-sized bird that had flown into the second-floor room of a crumbling hotel and couldn't remember how to fly out before he pulped it. He ate most of it, put the rest into what remained of a pocket, and walked outside. He threw it on the ground, and the dog slunk out of the shadows, still tense but no longer growling. The man sighed, returned to the hotel, and climbed up to the second floor. There were no rooms with windows intact, but he did find one with half a mattress remaining, and he collapsed upon it. When he awoke, the dog was lying in the doorway, sleeping soundly. They walked a little closer this time, through the remains of the forest that was north of the city. After they had proceeded about a dozen miles, they found a small stream that was not quite dry and drank from it, the man first, and then the dog. That night the man lit another fire, and the dog lay down on the opposite side of it. The next day the dog killed a small, undernourished squirrel. He did not share it with the man, but neither did he growl or bare his teeth as the man approached. That night the man killed a possum, and they remained in the area for two days, until the last of the marsupial's flesh had been consumed. They walked north for almost two weeks, making an occasional kill, finding an occasional source of water. Then one night it rained, and there was no fire, and the man sat, arms hugging himself, beneath a large tree. Soon the dog approached him, sat about four feet away, and then slowly, ever so slowly, inched forward as the rain struck his flanks. The man reached out absently and stroked the dog's neck. It was their first physical contact, and the dog leapt back, snarling. The man withdrew his hand and sat motionless, and soon the dog moved forward again. After a period of time that might have been ten minutes, or perhaps two hours, 
The man reached out once more, and this time, although the dog trembled and tensed, he did not pull away. The man's long fingers slowly moved up the sore-covered neck, scratched behind the torn ears, gently stroked the scarred head. Finally, the man withdrew his hand and rolled over on his side. The dog looked at him for a moment, then sighed and laid up against his emaciated body. The man awoke the next morning to the feeling of something warm and scaly pressed into his hand. It was not the cool, moist nose of the dogs of literature, because this was not a dog of literature. This was the last dog, and he was the last man. And if they looked less than heroic, at least there was no one around to see and bemoan how the mighty had fallen. The man patted the dog's head, arose, stretched, and began walking. The dog trotted at his side, and for the first time in many years, the nub of his tail moved rapidly from side to side. They hunted and ate and drank and slept, then repeated the procedure again and again. And then they came to the other. The other looked like neither man nor dog, nor like anything else of earth, as indeed it was not. It had come from beyond Centauri, beyond Arcturus, past Antares, from deep at the core of the galaxy where the stars pressed so close together that nightfall never came. It had come and had seen and had conquered. You, hissed the man, holding his stick at the ready. You are the last, said the other. For six years I have soured and scourged the face of this planet. For six years I have eaten alone and slept alone and lived alone and hunted down the survivors of the war one by one. And you are the last. There is only you to be slain, and then I may go home. And so saying, it withdrew a weapon that looked strangely like a pistol, but wasn't. The man crouched and prepared to hurl his stick, but even as he did so, a brick-red, scarred, bristling engine of destruction hurtled past him, leaping through space for the other. The other touched what passed for a belt, made a quick gesture in the air, and the dog bounced back off of something that was invisible, unsensible, but untangible. Then, very slowly, almost casually, the other pointed its weapon at the man. There was no explosion, no flash of light, no whirring of gears. But suddenly, the man grasped his throat and fell to the ground. The dog got up and limped painfully over to the man. He nuzzled his face, whined once, and pawed at his body, trying to turn it over. It is no use, said the other, although its lips no longer moved. He was the last, and now he is dead. The dog whined again 
and pushed the man's lifeless head with his muzzle. Come, animal, said the other, wordlessly. Come with me, and I shall feed you and tend to your wounds. I will stay with the man, said the dog, also wordlessly. But he is dead. Soon you will grow hungry and weak. I was hungry and weak before, said the dog. The other took a step forward, but stopped as the dog bared his teeth and growled. He was not worth your loyalty. He was my... The dog's brain searched for a word, but the concept it sought was complex, far beyond its meager abilities to formulate. He was my friend. He was my enemy. He was petty and barbarous and unscrupulous and all that is worst in a sentient being. He was man. Yes, said the dog. He was man. With another whimper, he lay down beside the body of the man and rested his head on its chest. There are no more, and soon you will leave him. The dog looked up at the other and snarled again, and then the other was gone and the dog was alone with the man. He licked him and nuzzled him and stood guard over him for two days and two nights, and then, as the other had said he would, he left to hunt for food and water. And he came to a valley of fat, lazy rabbits and cool, clear ponds, and he ate and drank and grew strong and his wounds began to scab over and heal and his coat grew long and luxuriant and because he was only a dog it was not long before he'd forgot that there had ever been such a thing as a man except on those chilly nights when he lay alone beneath a tree in the valley and dreamt of a bond that had been forged by a gentle touch upon the head, or a soft word, barely audible above the crackling of a small fire. And, being a dog, one day he forgot even that, and assumed the emptiness within him came only from hunger. And when he grew old and feeble and sick, he did not seek out the man's barren bones and lie down to die beside them, but rather he dug a hole in the damp earth near the pond and lay there, his eyes half-closed, a numbness setting in at his extremities and working its way slowly towards his heart. And just before the dog exhaled his last breath, he felt a moment of panic. He tried to jump up, but found that he couldn't. He whimpered once, his eyes clouding over with fear and something else. And then it seemed to him that a bony, gentle hand was caressing his ears. And with a single wag of his tail, the last dog closed his eyes for the last time and prepared to join a god of stubbled beard and torn clothes and feet wrapped in rags.
So, what'd you think? I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I used to hate coming out of a movie or some experience that was new to me and was so monumental that I had not even a minute to process it myself and just being bombarded with other people's opinions. I won't do that to you guys. But we want to know what you think about the Drabblecast in general, or this show in particular. In advance of our Kickstarter launch date, you can also hop over to our website, which is Drabblecast.org, and put your email address in the mailing list sign-up field. That We have a newsletter coming out very shortly, which is full of great content, and that'll also help you to keep abreast of any weird things we have coming up, either before the Kickstarter, during its launch, or after when we're rebirthing into the world. We're on Facebook, just Drabblecast, or on Twitter and Instagram, at Drabblecast. Reach out to us anytime. We really do want to hear from you, weirdos. Have a great week, and we'll see you Friday for the Kickstarter relaunch. Somewhere a queen is weeping Somewhere a king has no wife